0: Hello, I'm Timmy Bose. Welcome to the net Hero podcast. Now, one of the things that I, if you've been following what we've been doing, I'm all for a variety. Variety is the spice of life. And just a couple of weeks ago, I had a guest on, Mark Cortez, who, you know, a lot of people weren't happy that put him on because he was saying we need a balanced view of net zero. So do I say that. And that, you know, you can't be a climate doom merchant and you can't just say that there's only one way to do things. Now, I've... Fallen foul of the EV zealots that are out there. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think there's a lot of people who are doing great work promoting EVs, and there's a great role for them. But they're not the panacea. And today's guest is someone that I've come across, again, pretty much by reading stuff that has been published, stuff that's on LinkedIn. And it's all about kind of emissions. And this is the crux of what we're going for. If we want to decarbonize transport, we want to cut down emissions. And the obvious scenario is, dirty stuff coming out of petrol and diesel engines clean stuff ie nothing coming out of evs but that's not really the full story there are lots of different emissions associated with a vehicle from the particulates that the tires throw up to you know the residue and elements that are inside the materials that are degraded over time and so much more my guest today is a guy called nick Molden who runs a company called emissions analytics and they look at basically testing in real world uh, independent circumstances a variety of different vehicles so but one of the things that's really important is, you know, how clean a vehicle is. My guest today is Nick Mould, who runs an organisation called Emissions Analytics. And I've been following Nick's stuff on LinkedIn, also his publications, because he's been looking at vehicles of all kinds and getting a true picture of what the emissions are around their day-to-day activities. And the good thing is, it's all independently done. So Nick, welcome.
1: Hi there. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Tell us in a nutshell how Emissions Analytics came about, because we get for about 10 or 11 years is that right
1: yeah that's right and the the thing which got us into this in the first place was worrying about fuel economy worrying about the miles per gallon fuel consumption figures in the brochure when people bought cars not representing what really happened on the road and uh, the gaps were you know 10 20 percent so that meant people were paying more for their fuel but that led us very quickly to CO2, which is very closely associated with, with fuel consumption, yeah. and then into yeah. NOx emissions. So we, we were testing lots of cars, trying to get to the bottom of this, and suddenly found this world of emissions exceedances that we never dreamt would be so bad.
0: Where were you working before? Are you from the vehicle world? Are you? Did you work for a manufacturer as a sort of emissions tester?
1: No, not at all. My background is actually in the media primarily and, and on the business side. But what I am by training is an economist who's very interested in market failure. And market failure, that is the core of the environmental problem where people privately create pollution, which they dump into the environment at no cost to them but that creates a societal problem. So in a sense, I decided to take my business experience and my economic interest to try and solve these problems of air quality uh, and climate change through the power of independent testing and data. It's a big leap. I mean, I'm kind of pissed off with a lot of stuff out there. I
0: wouldn't start a business to do it. So, what drove you to do that? I mean, that's, you know, we've all seen, yes, it says 60 miles per gallon or whatever it is for an EV in range. And then you go and have one and you go, well, that ain't true. But you must be very, I know, driven by this to actually start to say, actually, there's the gap in the market to look at this purely, uh, you know, in a neutral way.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it does spring ultimately from a personal interest and motivation. uh, but when you talk about something like, say, the MPG figures giving a flattering view, yeah, it's not just that it costs normal people more money to run their car. Yeah. At the macro level, it leads to a misallocation of resources, as, as economists would call it, i.e., People would buy the wrong sorts of cars for their purpose on these misleading figures. They would then emit more than they the driver thinks the car would emit. And overall, essentially, it boils down to making us all poorer. It makes us poorer financially. It makes us poorer in terms of the quality of the environment. So it's not just an innocuous, uh, well, it's just an official number on a piece of paper. Don't worry too much about it. It makes us all poorer and the quality of life worse. And that, so yes, it is springs from a personal motivation, but I think it's a big motivation. And in today's environment, a really important one.
0: How does um, emissions analytics work? Can you tell the listener what you do? You are for profit, so let's be clear about that. But you go about, can you take us through a process of how you test a car? As a matter whether it's an ICE car or an EV car. What would you do? and what are you looking at in terms of
1: what emissions are because i said at the very beginning it's not just stuff that comes out the tailpipe sure i mean you say we're for profit and that's something it's very easy to be a little bit defensive about that but actually no i'm all for that i would say that's actually really important in this case because what for profit means is that we are we fund it ourselves i mean i fund it personally and it enables us to go and test whatever we like we are not constrained by grants from government or funding from industry or NGOs, we can go and look where we think the real problems are. So initially what we did, we went and rented vehicles from the marketplace, strapped on our gas analyzing equipment to smell what comes out of the tailpipe, and we're able to measure NOx and CO2 in real time with a normal person driving that car on the road and we could publish that data publish and be damned i didn't need <laughs> uh, i didn't i didn't need the permission of the manufacturer to do it we just wanted to see what was really happening with real people i mean i love it i love it I love it because it's
0: very ballsy and it's the way to do It's very kind of journalistic. But, you know, that's the thing people would say is you're not. We want to be very clear. You don't go and get Kia or Tesla or Ford and say, give us a car and then we'll test it. And then you'll be holding to see what results you get because you've got a master there. You just go and rent it like a normal car. You do your testing, then you publish and then say to them, have a look at this.
1: Is that how it works? That's right. And and it's important to say we are not pro or anti-car in any policy way from us as a company. And therein, we publish good results as well as bad results. What's astonishing now is how much below the regulatory limits a lot of the internal combustion engines still on the market are. We've swung from a situation pre-diesel gate where there were all these over-emitting diesels to a point now where we've got, you know, diesels now emit NOx probably 80 to 90% below the regulated limit. So we shout about those sorts of results just as much as we shouted about the exceedances before. We don't want to be seen as anti-car, anti-industry, because we're not. What we want is the right data to be out there so everyone can make the optimal decisions. And And, and that's why we've now turned our attention to tyre wear. We think that is the, the big coming under Appreciated issue with vehicles causing environmental damage. Let's talk
0: about just before we get into the whole kind of debate about emissions, what cars are out there? And, and particularly when I particularly want to talk, as I said at the beginning, about the EVs. But just again, to get some background, how many cars do you test? Where do you publish the stuff? Are you scientists as such? So does it go in sort of official scientific documents or are you kind of much more a business oriented? You publish on LinkedIn or on your website or whatever for the general sector or in multi motoring?
1: magazines things like that I mean we do some of all of that right so we I've surrounded myself by scientists and engineers in the company to to offset the fact that I'm not one <laughs> that I have the bit which is the ability to develop test methods and analyze data uh, in a way that then allows us to publish things with confidence now we as you've seen from our activity we publish a lot on on our website in terms of monthly newsletters which go into detail on particular topics of the day. We're also active in social media, but that's really the most publicly visible part. Behind the scenes, what there is are a lot of academic papers that get published using our data, which are available to the academic community. Uh, We work closely with a large number of universities around the world, for example, doing health exposure experiments to try and understand the the health impacts of pollution. Then there's, of course, the commercial products that we sell. So the data that arises from all our testing goes into databases that people can subscribe to. So we have manufacturers, regulators, NGOs who subscribe and get then access to the full detailed raw data from our tests. So Everything that we do is, is accessible, some for free, publicly, some via academic media and others through paid subscriptions.
0: What gives you your credibility? Because people say, you know, there are big testing houses, European bodies, as you say, some, you know, EU-funded and UK-funded, government-funded ones are out there. What uh, gives you the uh, ability to stand up to the Pepsi challenge, as they used to say, in my generation?
1: Well, I, so, I mean, ultimately, we know it. What we do works because we have people come to us. And particularly that's motivated when they want to know what's really going on. And that's in contrast to when you just want to get a certification. So if you just have to pass some tests to be able to sell your product in the market, you tend to go to one of the bigger established operators. If you want to know what's really happening in the world and get an unvarnished view then people come to us. In terms of credibility, because we are willing to publish both good and bad without fear or favor, uh, that has built our real public credibility. So the most concrete example would be we were publishing papers showing the high NOx emissions from diesels in Europe about two years before diesel blew up. Uh, And it was not a message that anyone particularly wanted to hear in 2013. The manufacturers obviously didn't. The governments didn't. No one really wanted to know. But then when it was proven that it was the case, then that that was uh, possibly the single biggest thing which established our our authority.
0: There is a sort of, I think it's called the Vehicle Certification Agency. Is that right? Is that the the sort of government one? Yes. Now... What's your relationship with them or or are you sort of seen kind of as an outlier or, or do you have conversations with them? I, I, mean, I think,
1: I mean, and it's true to say that with a lot of the, the similar sorts of agencies and regulators, we have ongoing dialogues and pretty good relations. I think the common thing that though they look to is the work we do, which is best described as independent surveillance. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You know, could they and whenever you're trying to you know monitor whether you know everyone's behaving and the emissions are low as they should be you can do random sampling of vehicles but that's always a tiny sample of the vehicles on the road so with our program which is you know a large program we've tested you know over two and a half thousand vehicles over the years you know that's actually a really useful extra tool in surveillance because we pick up things that the official surveillance might not pick up. Uh, and so, even though sometimes we may come out with messages that are not particularly politically convenient. <laughs> The overall role as surveying what's really going on actually it, it is a valuable one, and, and that's why agencies around the world you know talk to us regularly. I'm glad we clear that up for the listeners so
0: we, we know where we're coming from. So let's get down to it. Let's do a very basic kind of idiot's guide, because I am a basic idiot. What are the emissions out of cars? So let's take a petrol car, a diesel car, and an EV. Let's just talk about what emissions
1: do you look at. So, so that these the, the actual types of emissions we look at are carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, the nitrogen oxides, particles, also a range of VOCs, including things like formaldehyde. Um, So it's it's a big suite of of, uh, pollutants that we can measure in real time. So we don't just know the totals, we know when those emissions were emitted, like under heavy acceleration, or going up a hill or something like that. So that's the depth of of, of data we get.
0: But you do the same circuit so you'd go I don't know let's be in the real world you drive the car it goes to the Sainsbury's car park then you go up a hill then you stop in traffic you go in the motorway do you try and do the same thing with each car so you're getting a, a level parameter for how you're testing?
1: Very much so we, we developed and um, right back when we started something called our Equa test which is Uh, approximately a three-hour on-road route made up of urban, rural, and motorway driving. So every vehicle is driven on that same route within some very tight parameters. So you're not allowed much deviation in terms of traffic flow or weather conditions. Mm -hmm. And the net effect of that means that all those thousands of vehicles that we tested, you can compare Uh, with a good degree of precision between the different cars tested. So we can do a meaningful comparison between a car tested five years ago and a new one tested today to show how much improvement there's been over time. Let's look at petrol car. What is
0: a a standard petrol car? What does it chuck out of its exhaust? And what's the difference between that and
1: what a diesel car chucked out? Okay, so increasingly, most of the... Pollution comes during what's called cold start. I, when you're starting the car first thing in the morning and the engine is cold. Right. For about two minutes, a petrol car emits quite a lot of nasty stuff, uh, sticky, volatile organic compounds, carbon monoxide. So you don't want to be standing too close <laughs> for that first couple of minutes. After that then the after-treatment systems, the catalytic converters all kick in, and then almost nothing is coming out of that exhaust for the rest of the journey, except for relatively high levels of ultra-fine particles, totally invisible and minute particles, but a lot of them, and they're the ones that have the danger of getting sucked right deep into the lungs and into the the bloodstream. And
0: the, these are particles from the, the engine or the fuel or, or just along the
1: exhaust pathway, are they? Yeah, these are f- from the combustion in the engine and out right. of the exhaust pipe. Um, there is, you know, some evaporation of the fuel from the tank, but not very much. Right. Um, and there is some evaporation of VOCs from the tires as well, which is a an underappreciated area. But it's fair to say, as if you're driving along in your petrol car, you know, you've been going for five minutes and even driving fairly fast, there is basically nothing coming out of the exhaust pipe except these ultrafine particles and, of course, the carbon dioxide from the combustion. Right. That's that one. It's a world away from vehicles of 20 years ago. It's really low. On the diesel side, diesel side has the same cold start problem, but that lasts a bit longer, more like 10 to 15 minutes so again sort of stand clear for the for that initial period but after that after that diesels have lower emissions than than petrol cars they have really lower, yeah, yeah absolutely you know we, one of the horrible paradoxes of dieselgate is that now diesel cars are cleaner than petrol cars so the carbon dioxide is is less to the tune of about 15% Um, Because diesel is a lower carbon producing fuel. That's why we went into it in the first place. But also the particles are lower because they all have very good particle filters on them. And now with the AdBlue systems, the NOx has been brought down to very low levels. So as you were, yeah. as you are going your diesel, nothing's coming out. I did have a, a diesel. What is that blue? Because you have to
0: add it, and you've got to have it topped up every year.
1: It's effectively a urea solution. So it, it's it's an ammonia solution, and what happens is you inject that into the hot exhaust, mm. and mm. the ammonia reacts with the NOx to neutralise it effectively. So it's a relatively cheap, abundant compound that selectively reacts with the NOx to get rid of it. it. It really works very, very well. What about particulates? Well, on the diesels, because they have these what's called DPFs, diesel particulate filters, it virtually clears it up completely. Uh, they've got better and better over the years. Now to the point the filtration efficiency is 99.9 plus percent. So it captures the vast majority of particles. The only thing you need to be careful of is that you're filter doesn't get blocked or broken in some way so which is more an mot you know annual service check question but so long as they're working they are amazing at clearing up particles
0: so would you say let's take a modern car within the last 5 years a modern petrol car and a modern diesel car would you actually say the diesel car effectively is cleaner over a, a, a one-year driving span than the petrol definitely wow that's not what's in the common perception
1: uh, no, no it's not no it's not and and i, I would say the, the the more recent you get the cleaner it gets so probably you know the, the really good diesel ones have probably come on the market in the last three years and they're getting the NOx levels down to s- similar levels to to the petrol cars as well so essentially, it just leaves You know, everything's about the same except diesels have lower CO two and lower particles. That's simplifying the situation, but it isn't essentially the case. So if you buy a brand new diesel today from any of reputable manufacturer, you will it'll be better than buying a petrol car. But yeah, that's so against the public perception.
0: <laughs> You're a heretic, Nick. You're a heretic.
1: Well, and I'm not pretending, you know, diesel, the brand of diesel from a passenger car point of view is dead. You know, there's very, very few people, you know, that's the sad truth of it. But, you know, diesel, one has to reflect diesel is an almost miraculous fuel in the sense of the energy density of it. So the um, distance you can go on a cup full of diesel is extraordinary. And yeah. diesel is a very safe fuel to handle. It's not flammable in the same way that gasoline is. No. So it, it is a tragedy that Europe managed to mess up the regulation of diesel in such a spectacular way that it it wrecked that fuel. It should be said, you know, there is no way diesel, even diesel, can get us to our net zero targets so we can't ju- so there's no point in clinging to history we have to get down to net zero by 2050 so we'd have we'd have had to have gone beyond diesel anyway but it is still true in the panic of- after Dieselgate, gate where if dumped diesel and went to gasoline to a large extent that's probably made our emissions worse not better
0: let's move on to electric cars so mm-hmm. what emissions come from electric cars and let's do the two types although there aren't many of them <clears throat> there's the hydrogen fuel cell ones and the general BEV ones the normal battery ones what does an ev produce any emissions
1: uh, it, it certainly does yes i mean there's, there's two main sources of emissions from battery electric vehicles which are in the manufacture of it and in the usage from particularly tire emissions. I mean the manufacturer side obviously there's the the mining refining of the materials that go into the batteries and the motors uh, and then obviously the construction of the vehicle. So every vehicle has these construction emissions. Yes. Um, it's just the battery electric vehicles with the batteries generally have probably 5 to 7 tons more co2 emissions in their manufacture than an equivalent internal combustion engine now over time you may be able to reduce that let me just stop you there
0: now that's a really interesting point because a lot of people say well you're not thinking you're not saying the right thing because you know we're talking about emissions when you're driving it and you're talking about embedded emissions as such but that that is a significant figure so are you saying that actually the narrative it's difficult because you could say, well, actually, the narrative for an ICE car is how much emissions in its embedded carbon footprint do we add to its running as well. Mm-hmm. There's, there are two conversations. The, the general conversation for most people in the street is if I said to them, does my petrol car or my diesel car or my EV produce anything? They'll say the EV produces nothing. Your point here about the embedded critics of you, and I've seen them say "We, you know, that's not relevant because... Every car has an embedded carbon. We're talking about when an EV is driving, nothing comes out the tailpipe.
1: Yes, the, the, the simple way of thinking about it is that EVs do have additional CO two, and it's, and the and the additional bit is roughly equivalent to the CO two emissions in making the battery because you could the CO two in the engine of an internal combustion engine is roughly the same as the co2 making the motors so they cancel each other out right. the chassis yeah, is about the same anyway yeah. so yeah. you know th- this, so everything sort of matches up the difference remains the battery is the sort of incremental co2 emissions and i know this is a bit of an approximation but it's a good approximation and the typical 80 kilowatt hour battery, you're probably looking somewhere between five to seven tons of CO2. So that's the incremental. So if you think about it in investment and return, you are investing an additional five tons of CO2 up front to get all the benefit of lower CO2 from operation. And one really has to remember, an internal combustion engine, when it's running along the road, it is emitting an a lot of CO you know, two. It, it can be, you know, 100, you know easily two hundred grams per kilometer. So you're emitting a kilo of CO two every five kilometers. You know, it's a lot. We we mustn't. We can't in any way put a positive gloss on that. So, no. so a so that five tons of extra manu- battery manufacturing does get. Paid back quite quickly by their battery vehicle. Some people say it's as low as one to two years of normal driving. Others say it's as much as seven, ten years. What matters is how clean the electricity is you're powering the electric vehicle, and how many and how many miles you drive a year. And, and you get it. So the range is very big, depending on those those factors. But ultimately, in most cases, that upfront CO2 from the battery will get paid back and overall a battery electric vehicle will have lower lifetime co2 emissions than an internal combustion engine probably by our estimates of around 50 percent less so from a climate change point of view battery electric vehicles are better made no bones about it.
0: What about any any direct emissions?
1: So nothing comes out
0: the tailpipe,
1: because I remember driving the, uh,
0: the oh, I can't remember what it's called now, the Mirai, that's it, the Mirai, the Toyota one, and they said, you know, you can drink the water that comes out of it. Mm-hmm. And obviously I've got an EV sitting there, and it is nice that when I drive, it's silent, nothing's coming out of uh, that compared to the, the petrol car. Um, but you've been talking quite a lot about, Tire emissions. So let's just clarify that. Are there any actual emissions from what would be the the battery compartment that get out? Or is all the emissions that we talk about with an EV, apart from what we talk about the, the embedded stuff, but all the emissions is really from the tyre particulates? Is that what you're saying?
1: Uh, that is the single biggest one. There will be some brake wear, but not very much because of yeah. the regenerative braking. So it is essentially all tyre wear emissions. And the typical amount we would expect to see from a battery electric vehicle would be about 90 milligrams per kilometer of tire material. To put that in context, the particles that are allowed out of the tailpipe legally cannot be above five. Wow. So so the, the tire particles are many times, well, more than 10 times greater um, than the maximum permissible out of the tailpipe. In reality, the amount of particles coming out of the tailpipe is much, much lower. But if we if we just take that legal maximum, uh, that gives you an idea that tire particles are very high, very high. How do they compare? ICE car tire particles? Yes, though? They're about twenty percent greater, twenty to twenty five percent greater. Right. Than, so let's say about seventy milligrams per kilometer for a uh, ICE and. Yeah. And ninety-four for a BEV. So, the, so a delta, an increment of about 20 milligrams per kilometre on the battery vehicle. And that 20, that's big. Is that because of the weight? Is, is yes. that the thing about the weight? That the, because
0: EVs are heavier, they push down more, and that, or is that another fallacy?
1: No, that's, that's absolutely correct, and we've done controlled experiments to prove it. But it, it, it's actually a combination of the weight and the torque of the electric vehicle. So what's fantastic about these electric motors is that you get instant torque at at, at, at low speed. But you put that together with the weight, and that is what's driving that increment. And it's also the reason why you get some battery vehicle owners saying my tyre wear emissions are much lower. It's true. If you drive your battery electric vehicle extremely gently and using all the regenerative braking and very smooth driving style the technology does allow you to reduce the tyre emissions the reality of it is for normal people driving in a normal way the weight plus the torque gives you this 20 percent increment
0: you've put out conversations and i've always liked what you say which is you're very kind of neutral here's the facts whatever the moment you put out anything about electric vehicles i've seen you get a ton of abuse
1: how does that make you feel is this the therapy part of the session Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, i think you know i think of it from a statistical point of view in the sense of anything we post tends to elicit reaction from a self-selecting group of people and the people you do not hear from are the ones that either agree with you or think there's something in what you're saying or think you know they might not completely agree with it but you think they've got you they think you've got valid points those people in the main just stay silent so i always so whenever i'm on the receiving end of often ill-tempered yeah. ill thought through comments and people by the way not willing not really wanting to engage in conversation they're just trying to slap you down yeah. i always try and recall all the the lots of silent people who are likely to think that there's something valid in in what you're saying. So, you know, and I believe in free speech. So as long as people stay on the right side of the law, one has to, you know, if one wants to be active in this area, then one has to suck it up.
0: <laughs> let's get some things clear, right? You are not an advocate for diesel and petrol cars. You're not saying that let's just keep going as they are. you're putting the point about where the science is do you let me put this question to you which is this is the fundamental thing and i struggle with this is electrification of transport the way to go because there are other things that i've done podcasts on things like e-fuels that have made me rethink you know i see hydrogen playing a role for heavy transport but it seems to be there is government push there's all the chat out there you know the big Sort of, you know, I don't know. Like I said, I call them EV zealots, but it's mm. probably a bit unfair to some of them. But some of them are who well, that this is the only way to go. But we've got to be realistic about things that I think are very important, which are an equitable transition, a just transition. This is why my problem with the ULA's expansion because it's just a broad brush thing that's attacking people who probably got the oldest cars because they're the poorest people getting hammered for it. Where do you sit on? Our reasoned way of reducing admissions we all want to do that to get to net zero transport. But is it right now the cult of the battery car seems to be dominating the conversation?
1: Well, there's certainly a cult of the battery car. Yes, that's true. And I think you were rather tentative in using the word zealot. I think that, that's a positively generous and gentle <laughs> word to describe. I'd use
0: far stronger words, but no, that's fine.
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's obviously incredibly complex and fast moving situation, but I I would characterize my position as I think electrification is a a, a very important and prominent way to decarbonize transport. But at the same time, I would say there is all the difference in the world between electrification and full electrification. And that is so I we think you know significant hybridization is vital within full electrification of certain parts of the market and for certain usage cases is undoubtedly the best way forward. Also, I mean e-fuels is a form of electrification. It is, you know, a way of storing surplus renewable energy in liquid form. So I would count that as electrification more than I would combustion. So Electrification is is definitely the way forward, but not full electrification, because if you force full electrification into every usage case, you'll get many cases where the CO2 is worse than if you'd stayed with your original way of doing things. There's also a very important point about robustness um, in, in terms of ability to do jobs without running out of electricity in remote areas yeah. so, you know with the looming trade wars with China um, and their control of materials we do not want to fully convert our transportation infrastructure to something which could potentially be held hostage we what we need to there needs to be a robustness and to some degree spreading of our risks such that if something bad happened geopolitically that the economy could still continue to function so that's why going for full battery electrification in a blind way it's exposing us to significant risks that they don't actually reduce co2 as much as promised and putting and putting ourselves in the hands of Essentially hostile foreign powers. Um, now, America has spotted that and 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 uh, trying to build up their own domestic supply chains. But as has been yeah. as has been shown in just in the FT yesterday, that even with their current plans and the hundreds of billions of dollars going into it, they will still be well behind China in a decade's time. So the world has. You know, has the danger of putting itself in the hands of China if you go down a blind, full electrification route. So, in summary, electrification, yes. Full electrification, no. The,
0: before we end, there's a couple of things. I, I mean, I agree with everything you've said, and I think it's a very interesting thing. Do you think the debate has changed? You've been doing this for 11, 12 years, OK? And, you know, 12 years ago, I remember driving a us- Tesla, Roadster, and, they, and this is hilarious, but it'll never catch on, right? Five years ago, I'd never have bought an EV, right? And now I have one, but it's got a lot of issues with it, which is it's brilliant in London, but, you know, I, I, if I want to go down to the West Country, forget it. There's just no infrastructure, right? You go, if it's fine if you've got Tesla, but anyone else? one charging point at a service station and there's 10 of you trying to charge, your times all go. So there's a lot of issues which are all part of it. The other thing that's happening is, I suppose, a realisation. Let's commit to net zero, let's do this, let's ban cars, whatever, and suddenly, oop, energy security, the war in Ukraine, the whole thing has suddenly made us realise what is it that needs to keep us going, and the pandemic as well, to, to keep functioning. So do you think, in a way, All of this is just growing pains as we transition to new forms of transport. And yes, it's difficult. And yes, at present, there's a kind of unfair sort of divide. and People are kind of getting into silos when really we all want the same thing, which is cleaner air for our kids and ourselves and cleaner transport. Do you think it's gonna sort of, dare I say, work its way through over the next few years?
1: I think the thing which will determine the outcome will be the access to green energy in the widest sense at the economy level right in a, in a sense the transportation part is one manifestation and, and and actually when you look at the options there are relatively few things you can do unless you totally decarbonize the grid and massively expand the grid as well. If you don't do that and your grid is still quite carbon heavy, you're really just moving the deck chairs around the Titanic. And it's what? so what we need to do as a country and, and countries generally need to do, if there's a first priority, it should be to develop significant extra headroom of green electricity. Now, many people would say, Right, let's go hell for leather with renewables, or with wind and solar primarily. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, that should happen to some degree. It's happening already. But we should go further and faster, as quickly you know, as quickly as we can. But that's not sufficient. It may be necessary, but it's not sufficient to solve the problem because of the intermittency. To solve the intermittency, you either need to have grid level battery storage, which brings us back to all the same problems of materials so which isn't really viable at scale or you need essentially a big chunk of nuclear in in all, in all likelihood so if we if we move to to a point where we had a totally decarbonized and expanded grid which was let's say for the sake of argument 50% nuclear and 50% renewables with then storage um, mechanisms into synthetic fuels or green hydrogen or whatever it is. So you had a nicely balanced decarbonized grid, then all sorts of things become possible. And and then decarbonizing of transportation becomes very viable, just like decarbonization of home heating then becomes totally viable. But without that underlying change, you know, we're fiddling, we'll be fiddling around the edges. And so that's why I, have a problem with governments threatening to put lots of subsidies into persuading people to buy electric cars. Mm. That's not where they should be putting the money today. If you don't decarbonize the grid, you'll be wasting a lot of your money, essentially giving taxpayers money to rich people who were either already going to buy the battery electric vehicle anyway, so it's a total dead weight on the economy, or worse... People buying an additional electric car and keeping their other car as well. That's exactly it. That's exactly it.
0: That's exactly my situation Yeah, Absolutely, because I've got double the carbon footprint because I need the
1: small runaround when I want to go to the Lake District. Yeah. So you, so you, by that decision, which in terms of official, if the official tally is being kept, you have done, you've done a great thing for the environment. In reality, in no. reality, you have not. No. You would be better to have one one hybrid vehicle.
0: Exactly, which is my next purchase. (laughs) Do you know what? I could talk to you for hours. This has been brilliant. And I'm really glad. We'd like you to come back. I think, you know, you've got some brilliant things to say. I'm more than happy on Future Net Zero and Energy Live News to publish stuff that you're putting out there. We need independent voices. Nick, just to end with, do you think, the twenty thirty 2030 target, twenty thirty five, I think, has moved to twenty thirty now. I can't even remember, it keeps shifting. But the target of twenty thirty, I think, is the, is the most recent one. Is that realistic
1: for ice vehicles to be history? Uh, no, I, d- I don't think so. Uh, I think there will be a twenty thirty target, but the details of it will be made more fudgy. <laughs> but we can do it. We can get to cleaner transport and cleaner air by twenty fifty. Uh, yes, we definitely can. But if there's a single thing that should be done, is plow. It, all our money into decolonizing the grid as fast as we can, and then everything else will follow from there.
0: I can't say how much I've enjoyed this because I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for your time, Nick. It's been brilliant to talk to you on the Net Hero podcast. Thanks for your information and check out Nick, Nick Molden Mission Analytics. Uh, you can have a look at them on the LinkedIn. You've got LinkedIn out there and you've got your website as well. Yeah, so all your okay. stuff is out there for the public to look at.
1: Yeah, please sign up to our newsletter. We put out a, a re- report of interest on some topic every month. So sign up for free to that. And, uh, you know, but thank thank you very much for inviting me. Really interesting discussion and uh, happy to do it again in the future. Excellent. And keep uh, knocking back the zealots. Good
0: to talk to you. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks again. <laughs> Bye. My thanks there to Nick, really good stuff. And I know some people find his comments controversial, but I'm all for that open discussion. And we need to have plenty of that if we're all gonna get to the shared goal of net zero. Now, a couple of quick things. This will be the last podcast for a little while, just going off on a little summer break, not for long, but we'll be relaunching the net hero podcast in the autumn. There'll be a new look, new logo, You've probably seen a bit of that already and we'll be doing it on video as well. So you'll be able to watch the podcast on YouTube. So do get in touch if you think you've got a story to be told or someone you know who should be featured on the podcast. We've got plenty of newsletters for you to sign up. So go to futurenetzero.com or nglidenews.com. Please sign up to our newsletters and you'll find all the news you want about Net Zero, ESG and sustainability on those two platforms. So, I'll see you soon. Please stay in touch on social media. Please rate the podcast, subscribe to it, and I'll catch you very soon. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media futurenetzero.com Better business, better planet.